0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, and his name is James Donald, and he is Managing Director and Head of Emerging Markets at Lazard Asset Management, where he runs a team of 75 people and analysts focused on the emerging markets across equities and fixed income, He has been investing in the emerging market space for over three decades. If you find the world of emerging markets remotely interesting, well, then strap yourself in for a master class in emerging markets investing. We discussed everything from valuation issues to constructing a portfolio to risk factors that exist in EM that may not exist in in developed countries. Uh, how countries go from frontier to EM and from EM to developed, and some of those developed countries have gone back, uh, fallen back into EM. Uh, This is an area I am personally fascinated in uh, because I'm aware of the fact that U.S. stocks are, let's just say, richly valued. uh, European and Japanese stocks, a little less richly valued. But EM is where uh, the valuation exists, and when we look at the track record of EM and U.S. stocks over long periods of time, it seems like the leadership goes back and forth. It cycles uh, over longer periods of time, five, seven, nine years at a time. We just finished a nearly decade-long period of time where EM not just underperformed the U.S., but significantly underperformed the U.S. The gap was about as wide as it ever gets. Last year seemed to be the beginning of a change of leadership, and we could see EM stocks outperforming the United States and other developed nations uh, for quite a number of years, perhaps even a full cycle. So if you are at all interested in places like China, India, Russia, Brazil, Mexico, Turkey, Greece—I keep saying Vietnam, even though it's a frontier country, but I'm, I'm intrigued by— that part of the world, South Korea and Taiwan as EM countries, when really they're almost developed countries, you will find this conversation absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Lazard Asset Management's James Donald. My special guest today is James Donald. He is the head of Emerging Markets at Lazard Asset Management where he is also portfolio manager and runs a variety of equity strategies in the emerging markets space. James Donald, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. So you began your career back in 1983, which was a pretty good time to get into finance, the start of a long bull market. What was your first job on Wall Street?
1: Well, um, I was... Uh, born in Toronto, and I actually began uh, my first career in Toronto at a brokerage firm called Wood Gundy, mm-hmm. where I did a training course around the firm. So you participated or helped build the training course. Um, I participated in the training course, in the training course, and I. I was involved in a whole lot of different functions in the firm, anything from operations all the way to government finance.
0: So what what drew you to the emerging market side?
1: Well, I I then, in 1985, uh, got a position at SG Warburg in London, Mm -hmm. and uh, I went into the investment management area there and was involved in global investments. This is really pre-emerging markets. Emerging Markets Only really developed, I would say, in 1987, 1988. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I was involved in managing global portfolios, a lot of U.S. uh, holdings at that time, uh, and really learned about portfolio management at S.G. Warburg, and the, the firm ultimately became Mercury Asset Management. And in the early 1990s, when Mercury was establishing its emerging market team, I was very interested in joining that team, and so I was one of the first members that that joined that team and was involved in managing portfolios at Mercury.
0: What What was the motivation that led you to say, so So you're in London, the center, especially in the 90s, of a, of a fairly booming developed nation, uh, developed metropolis. Uh, Europe was really starting to come into its own. What made you say, hey, all these developed market things are kind of interesting, but let's venture into something a little more uh, adventuresome.
1: Yeah, I had done a lot of work analyzing uh, smaller stocks in the U.S. and looking at stock markets in Asia. And back then, essentially the equivalent of emerging markets was places like Hong Kong and Singapore and um, Malaysia and areas like that. And so uh, I thought these markets were ones that I had had experience or not too different experiences with. And I I also was very attracted by the cultures, um, the variety of cultures in emerging markets. And at the end of the day, I felt that people around the world want to see their economies
0: develop. And the capital markets are a very, very critical part of that. So this was long before the era of index funds or country funds where you could just push a button and one transaction gives you exposure to, fill in the blank, Asia, Vietnam, emerging markets. Very different era. How was it like in those those days compared to today? It was
1: before index funds, but it wasn't necessarily before country funds. A lot of country funds actually developed during this time. Because a lot of these markets were very, very small, mm-hmm. and they don't, didn't want to be overwhelmed by foreign capital flowing in and flowing out. So actually, country funds were a very, very big part of the development of those markets. In general, uh, the markets were very small. Uh, a lot of the big, big countries today, for instance, China, which is close to being 30%, of the emerging market index today was was around 1%. Wow. And back then, places like, I mean, Malaysia was a huge market. Mexico was a very big market. Whereas, say, Brazil was relatively small. Or, um, you know, for instance, India was relatively small as well.
0: Were there any restrictions on... Uh, we know everybody wants capital coming into their countries. Were there any restrictions on how that money could be removed? Were they gated or... Any of these country funds, and I was thinking of country ETFs and indexes, but these specific country funds—if you needed to get your money out in a hurry—was that was that feasible? Well, if you go back more than twenty years, a great
1: deal of these markets were not markets you could directly invest in. You had to go through those country funds, so they were fixed pools of capital, and um, as a result of that, you know the country funds. Uh, values could be very different from their net asset values, and so essentially that could distort the picture very heavily. And no,
0: no computerized arbitrage opportunities. No, nope, none, uh,
1: none of that. Slowly, these markets have opened up, and uh, and investors like ourselves have been able to directly invest in them.
0: Let's get into some of the details and specifics. How do you define what is or is not an emerging market? Is it an economic definition? Is it a political definition? Where, where are the lines drawn? It's
1: something that's changed over time. I think um, originally the index was based, or the indices were based on economic development and, and political development. They've moved over time more towards what's easily accessible, and MSCI is the biggest index provider in this area, and they're very focused on accessibility.
0: Meaning, define accessibility, the ability to get capital in and... The, the uh, ability and to, to get capital
1: in, capital out, the ability to to get information on these markets uh,
0: without any major restrictions. So now is as good a time as any to ask, what is the distinction between the so-called frontier markets... And emerging markets. Well, those have even less
1: accessibility. Uh, on the whole, they are much more rudimentary economies and rudimentary markets, um, and they they have less liquidity in them. So uh, there are. There's an ongoing process by which countries have moved between uh, frontier markets and emerging markets, and
0: even back
1: into frontier markets.
0: It's a fuzzy line. It's not a very bright line
1: there there's certainly some gray in in that whole discussion
0: and and you mentioned earlier, China is about thirty percent of emerging markets. It's arguable that they're not that far off from being a developed nation. when when might that occur where China is no longer considered uh, an EM country?
1: yes, I, I I understand that. I get asked that question a great deal. I would say there are there are other countries that would be probably contenders, at least based on economic development before China.
0: Give give us some examples.
1: Well, the the most obvious are South Korea and Taiwan, Mm -hmm. which are actually quite developed economies, relatively wealthy economies. There are some restrictions with changing money and with investor identification that has caused them to stay in emerging markets. But in terms of overall capital market development, and economic development. They're probably the leading contenders. You
0: you would think South Korea is much closer to a Japan-like economy than a China-like economy.
1: Well, uh, China has come a long way. Mm -hmm. China has industrialized very uh, successfully. And China is no longer a low-wage country. It's actually a a medium-wage country, So it's not nearly as wealthy as South Korea or Taiwan on a Mm -hmm. per capita basis, but it's moved up quickly.
0: One of the appeals of emerging markets are that within this equity half of your portfolio, they're not completely correlated with either developed markets or or the U.S. uh, as a particular example. But that raises the question, how correlated or uncorrelated are emerging markets with the, the U.S. stock market? Well, the correlations have increased. There's no question that
1: when the U.S. market has big movements, we have a lot of interlinked risks around the world that cause these markets to be much more correlated than they used to be. Over time, there are big differences between the performance of the emerging markets and the U.S. market, but... On a short-term basis, the correlations are pretty high.
0: So so let's talk about those performance um, metrics. You, you look at the trailing 10 years, uh, and now we're 2018, so it takes us back still through the financial crisis. U.S. markets have done very well. Emerging markets, not so much. There seem to be signs that that's changing now. Tell us your thoughts on, on the performance issue, Uh, And how long these cycles last, they seem to alternate a little bit, don't they? It's
1: hard to tell how long they last. I mean, they seem to be uh, often 7 to 10-year periods Mm -hmm. that we see this. Uh, You're absolutely right. Emerging markets has underperformed the U.S. over the last 10 years. Um, I think the biggest reason for that is that we've been through a strong period where deflationary pressure has dominated markets. And the emerging markets are just more economically sensitive than the U.S. You know, if you think about the technology sector, for instance, big, big area in the U.S., uh, there is actually quite a big technology sector in emerging markets as well. But you have a lot of industries that are very economy sensitive. So in in that last decade period,
0: that economic sensitivity has worked against the returns in emerging markets. What about the dollar? I I used to think, and I'm, I'm changing my view somewhat on this, I used to think of emerging markets as heavily commodity dependent and therefore heavily dollar dependent. Is that still the case? And how significant is the dollar to emerging markets performance?
1: Well, the commodity areas like energy and materials are today relatively small parts of emerging markets, around 15% of our universe. How does
0: that compare to, say, 25, 30 years ago?
1: Well, uh, even 10 years ago, it was over 30%.
0: Really? That's a big change.
1: So it's a big change. Uh, it tends to fluctuate over periods of time. Um, but I, wh- what I would say is that emerging markets as a whole are just more dependent on economic growth than the developed world. And so when, when the world has difficulties with economic growth, emerging markets tend to be negatively affected by
0: it. So that's an interesting contrast, because I usually think of everybody dependent on economic growth. When we have a recession, people tend to spend less, less employment, profits are affected, it affects markets. But what you're really saying is more nuanced. Emerging markets are much more sensitive to the state of the economy than Europe or the US or even Japan for that matter. Is that, is that a fair assessment?
1: I think that's fair. I think the the clear enemies of emerging market equities are
0: negative real economic growth and or crises. So we've seen over the past year or two the US dollar weaken fairly dramatically after a huge seven or nine year run. And when we look at performance of emerging markets versus Europe versus US, they seem to have just edged out uh, those areas on a nominal basis, but for a U.S. investor in dollars, they had a booming year last year because of the weakness of the dollar. How significant is the currency, not to the exports of commodities, but to the net performance of EM to investors in the U.S.? Well, emerging market equities tend to have a natural negative
1: correlation to the dollar. Mm-hmm.
0: And Weak dollar, strong EM.
1: Weak dollar, strong EM, strong dollar, weak EM. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, is, that is a strong correlation. And indeed, uh, emerging markets tend to have quite a strong correlation with commodity
0: prices. Let's talk a little bit about some of these varied uh, differences between uh, emerging market countries in different parts of the world. When I think about EM, I tend to think about... Asia and South America, and to a a lesser degree, uh, Southern Europe, places like Turkey. Um, How different are all these regions? One would imagine those three places are very, very different economically and and in terms of their markets.
1: There is tremendous variety across emerging markets. In Asia, you have large technology sectors, for instance, whereas you have a lot more of a focus on commodities in parts of Latin America and in parts of uh, Eastern Europe, like Russia or South Africa. So very different countries, very different political systems,
0: tremendous variety. So when I think about different parts of the world, I think of the U.S. as fully or even richly valued, uh, Europe a little less richly valued, emerging markets relatively cheap compared to the other two, how do you come up with valuation metrics for different parts of the world when there's such different economies? If you're, if you're looking at China or Russia or you're looking at Brazil or Argentina, can you apply the same sort of metrics or do you have to develop different tools for different economies?
1: Well, I would, I would agree with you. I actually come at this from the perspective of thinking there are no cheap asset classes today relative to their own history, but emerging markets are relatively cheap to develop markets and to the U.S. market from where I stand. And uh, we approach our analysis by focusing uh, on stocks, uh, stocks that look inexpensively valued and relatively profitable. We do a lot of accounting analysis because we have uh, around 70 analysts at Lazard, who are involved at looking at all types of different strategies. And we make adjustments for accounting distortions where relevant. And then we look forward towards the fundamentals for their businesses. And we then see, according to the valuations, if we think uh, the stocks are inexpensively priced or not. And then at the end of our process, we'll discount for certain risks that include things like political risk and macroeconomic risk
0: and even governance risk. So, so last year in the United States, I think we could fairly safely say we had one of the most politically un- unstable or certainly politically volatile years we've seen, and yet the stock market was utterly placid. It was very confounding to a lot of people, although history tells us politics and investing don't don't matter that much in the United States. Can you apply that same rule abroad or do you have genuine risk that a government gets destabilized, there are capital controls that come in, and suddenly the investment thesis for that country is much more challenging than it was earlier? It's a very good question because I also was
1: surprised last year in the U.S. that the market did not seem to be affected by the noise uh, the political noise and the, the economic noise out there um, in the world as a whole and in the U.S. Um, I think it varies on situations, but certainly there are political effects that we see in emerging markets. A very good example right now is in South Africa, where um, a new leader uh, of the African National Congress, so Ramaphosa, has come into power and where there seem to be sizable changes afoot politically that are causing some quite big changes with the currency
0: and with the market in that country. What about um, some of the other countries where we've seen some either diplomatic or geopolitical issues? You mentioned Russia. Is is Russia an investable country? We believe it
1: is. It certainly is a place where you have to take into account political risk Mm -hmm. because- It can have big, big effects on certain corporations, and there's some degree of judgment in how we look at that. Um, It's also a place where we tend to see uh, risks associated with governance in some companies. So those are big, big factors in Russia. But we do think that there's reasonable protection in most
0: companies in Russia. What about India? We talked about China earlier, uh, and you mentioned India passing, a, a giant country by population, a big technology center. What are we to make of India's perennial sense of being on the verge of, of great things happening, and then nothing seems to really gain any traction? Well, I think India is
1: very exciting right now. Mm-hmm. You've got a prime minister, Mr. Modi, who doesn't really have to answer to anyone. Even the leaders of his own party were not in favor of him being prime minister. He appears to be very, very courageous. Uh, he's willing to do things like um, removing uh, the largest denominations of currencies and making big, big changes in the civil service. So um, what what is exciting is he's he's tackling the bureaucracy of that country, knowing that there's a huge young population with, I think, about a million people going into the workforce every month. Amazing. And he needs to prepare that country for um, a much more uh, developed uh, type of economic system.
0: What other country is sort of underappreciated or overlooked in the world of E.M.?
1: Well, of course, I mean, every country has its own issues. I mean, India, for instance, is actually, I wouldn't say, a terribly inexpensive market. We do find opportunities there, but it, in general, is not an inexpensive market. Um, The areas that that we think are are relatively underappreciated include Russia, Mm -hmm. include some stocks in Brazil, Turkey, Indonesia, for instance, Um, and, and to some degree, South Africa right now. But again, we find opportunities in many,
0: many markets across the emerging markets. Let, let's talk a little bit about putting those 70 analysts to work in the emerging market space. How important is it to have the, I know it's a cliche, but how important is it to physically be located in, in some of these countries and see firsthand what's going on? I think it's vital to go and see
1: Uh, activities in all of these countries. I, I don't think it's necessary to actually be there all the time, but I think it's very, very critical to travel, to get updates, to see what's changing in these markets on a very, very regular basis. Because if you're not seeing it fairly regularly, you're perhaps not understanding
0: opportunities or risks that are coming up in these markets. So so are you racking up a million frequent flyer miles a year, or are you more New York-based?
1: Not a million, but uh, a good portion of that. And pretty much all of our analysts are traveling heavily around the emerging market world to see opportunities on an ongoing basis. So let's talk a little bit
0: about market efficiency You know, there's only so much any of us can do to beat large-cap U.S. stocks. It seems a ton of information is known. There are no real advantages to picking this company over that, or so it seems in the U.S. Do you have that same level of market efficiency in emerging markets? Specifically, uh, is information as freely available? Are there advantages that can be had from your own analysis and your own data gathering? How does EM differ from, you know, the S&P 500 in terms of potentially producing market-beating results? Well, I think
1: indexing is a perfectly viable, tactical, and often short-term solution. Um, But one of the interesting things is that in emerging markets, over longer periods of time, the median manager tends to beat the index. Mm -hmm. And so I think informational efficiency is less good in the emerging markets. And there aren't necessarily a huge amount of analysts in emerging markets overall. It's nothing like the US. Mm -hmm. And so actually going and understanding these companies and utilizing certain strategies for investing, um, I think can produce good results in comparison with the index over longer-term periods of time, so um, it's a bit more work. I think one has to be creative, but I think one can construct portfolios using perhaps different investing methodologies in emerging markets that can uh,
0: provide a very strong performance in the long term. So, so let's talk about constructing those portfolios and and discuss a little bit of of process. Um, You manage a team that's a lot of analysts, I assume a bunch of traders, uh, a number of other support process, and I'm guessing there's an investment committee on the top of that uh, whole pyramid. What is the process like thinking about creating a new portfolio, making changes to existing portfolios? Tell us how you, you think about these things. Well, the way we're uh,
1: organized at Lazard is that we actually have 12 different emerging market teams, mm-hmm. anywhere from fixed income to currencies to fund-to-funds to equities. We're almost like a collection of boutiques, mm-hmm. and all the strategies are different. So in equities, for example, we have you know, four different equity strategies. We have a quantitative one, We have a relative value one, which is where I spend most of my time. Mm -hmm. We have a growth at a reasonable price one, and we have a core one. So a whole lot of different things. It's almost like a menu with four different um, food uh, plates, and people can decide based upon their objectives what what type of journey they would like to go on.
0: So that's GARP, Quant, Relative Value, and Core. And Core. Is there much overlap between them? Or by design, they're all very By design, they're quite different portfolios.
1: The overlap is relatively limited, and they will produce
0: different types of results for investors over time. And you mentioned fixed income. I'm under the impression that fixed income overseas is a little bit of a challenge, and fixed income in emerging markets is a very, very different animal than what we're used to here in the United States. It is very different
1: from the US. Um, you really have a number of different fixed income uh, areas in emerging markets. You have hard currency, debt, which which has been a very, very strong area. You have local currency that, until recently, has been relatively weak. Uh, and then you tend to get strategies that mix the two. Mm-hmm. And you also have
0: quite a significant corporate debt universe as well. And you reference currencies as a group. How significant does currency hedging become when you're investing in various countries? Or do you not bother with currency hedging and saying eventually it all evens out in the wash? In fixed income,
1: currency hedging happens a a significant amount, I would say. In equities, um, we can... Hedge currencies, in, in practice, we don't tend to do it that much. It's it's quite expensive, mm-hmm. and it's quite easy to get the time periods wrong. We tend to embed it in our target prices um, by analyzing what risks we think the currency or macroeconomic factors in general might mean for the actual uh, profitability of the company. So,
0: So you could reduce your expected returns in a given space- Thinking currency is a risk factor for this area. Correct. Huh. That that that's quite intriguing. You you also mentioned you have a relative valuation funds. Let let's talk a little bit about relative valuation in in the emerging market space. How do you think of EM valuations? Is it always relative between countries? Or are you looking at the group relative to developed uh, nations? Or, you mentioned earlier, you can look at different asset classes relative to their own history. Or do you do a little bit of everything? In the way we invest, we tend to look at the actual stocks
1: Mm -hmm. and their valuations. And in a relative value world, we tend to look at it relative to the profitability of the companies. In a growth at a reasonable price type of strategy, we tend to look at valuations relative to earnings per share growth rates. Mm-hmm. Um, as a whole, we'll, we'll look at the universe and we'll compare the universe in emerging markets to developed markets. Today, the price-earnings ratio of emerging markets as a whole is at about a 30% discount to that of developed markets. That's, that's pretty substantial. Do you think those will eventually converge? I think there's a good chance. Um, with the economic scenario we're seeing now, accelerating growth, around the world from a very low base. Uh, that's that's usually a positive thing for emerging markets, and we're anticipating uh, the likelihood of increasing profitability for emerging market stocks relative to developed market stocks. If those things happen, I think
0: we could see significantly lower discounts in valuation. So take me through your process a little bit, because there are so many moving parts here. I'm trying to get a handle on what is the decision-making process like when you're – is it top-down? Is it bottoms-up? Is it both? Because I, I sort of am hearing you guys are really more specifically stock pickers in each country as opposed to, hey, from a top-down view, we think Asia is attractive, but maybe South America not so much. So our tilt goes that way. Or am I, am I just getting that wrong?
1: No, you're exactly right. And most of our strategies are more bottom-up and top-down. Mm-hmm. So we tend to start by identifying what look like compellingly attractive stocks. Valuation almost always plays some sort of role, uh-huh. as do fundamentals. In the relative value strategy that I'm most involved with, we are attracted to stocks that are inexpensively priced and have had uh, pretty good profitability. Um, we then look closely at their financial statements and footnotes to see if there are distortions that are caused by that and adjust for any distortions that we think are material. Uh, If the stock is still compellingly attractive, we'll then look into the future, into the next three or four years, and try and forecast the fundamentals, particularly the profitability, and derive a price target for that. And if there's enough upside then uh, to go on to the last step, that's where we look at some of these other type of factors like macroeconomic and political risk and governance risk as well. Very important for us. And discount for those. And at the end of the day, see if we have
0: upsides that
1: are competitive with what we already have in our portfolio.
0: So since valuation drives stock pickings to such a large degree, do you ever find yourself stepping back and looking at the overall portfolio and saying, I'm going to make up a couple of countries, but gee, we have a lot of Turkey and Vietnam stocks, and we have almost no stocks from Mexico or Thailand. I'm just making these things up. But if valuation is a key driver, can you end up with sort of a lumpy distribution of, of con- stocks by country? You can end up with quite different
1: exposures in different countries. um, And uh, we don't have to invest in any given country. So
0: you have no mandate that, hey, I want 2% across the board and no more than 20% of this country? Well, we have limits on what we can have in a given country. Mm -hmm. So
1: we can't have, uh, you know, I I think it's very unlikely we're going to have positions in five or six countries and nowhere else that's right. that's really I, we've never had a situation like that we've always pretty much been invested in something like 13 14 15 countries in mm-hmm. emerging markets sometimes 20 but uh, so so we haven't really had that issue um, but there are times when some countries are just not attractive for us mm-hmm. and we'll have nothing there
0: we have been speaking with James Donald of Lazard asset management. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things emerging market. Uh, Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIBpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. James, thank you so much for doing this. This is an area I find absolutely fascinating. And in in my shop, uh, in the beginning of 2017, we changed our tilt uh, a little more aggressively towards EM from the US. And then we did it again uh, in the beginning of 2018. Nothing huge, just a couple of percentage points here and there. But like you, we look at valuation and think that's a key determiner of of future returns. There's a bunch of questions on value i didn't uh, I didn't get to that i want I want to come back to. But before I, I do that, I have to just talk about some numbers a little bit. So when we look at at the population of the emerging market countries, it's something like half of the global, uh, people, half the global population, but in terms of market cap, it, it's tiny. It's it's ten percent. Are those two eventually going to converge? Are we going to see a greater weighting uh, of emerging markets, or as these com- countries, or as these countries mature, some of them are going to start to move into the developed nations side of the ledger?
1: You'll probably see a combination of those things, mm-hmm. I, would, I would guess. I think at some stage, uh, probably not in the immediate term, but you're going to see some of these countries like South Korea and Taiwan move into the developed world. Um, and uh, the, in all likelihood, I think there will be more and more companies in emerging markets, and you'll see the
0: growth of those markets as a percentage of total market capitalization. So South Korea, Taiwan. Um, when I think of some of the more developed emerging market countries, Turkey, uh, Vietnam. I always want to say Australia, but I know uh, I know they're not technically an emerging market country. Who is the next tier below South Korea and Taiwan? Israel is another name that comes. Well, to Israel
1: mind. is actually it actually made the move a number of years ago mm-hmm. into the developed world. Mexico is a possibility, um, and it's it's a reasonably well developed country and market, so that that is a possible mover. How about anyone um,
0: from uh, South America?
1: I think it probably will take a little longer, but Chile would be definitely the the, the contender. Mm-hmm. I think there it's been a pretty successful economy and a pretty successful market.
0: Huh. That, that's intriguing, um, and we talked about valuation and EM relative to, to history, um, what emerging market countries do you think are uninvestable these days? Well, that's something we look
1: at very, very regularly. We look at what sort of protection we think there is for investors. Um, the best example of an uninvestable emerging market has really been Venezuela, which has had terrible, terrible problems, as what? you know. Inflation, uh, political a, instability. To a large degree caused by politics. Mm-hmm. And um, in 2005, 2006, basically the government said it was going to buy a lot of the uh, publicly listed stocks and just give us a value they thought made sense. There was no <laughs> real protection for investors there. So they, uh,
0: they deprivatized companies. Effectively. And said, effectively. We'll, we'll tell you what we think it's worth
1: effectively I gave us an arbitrary value for that so really we felt that is that is the best example of an uninvestable country
0: what's it going to take for them to rehabilitate that image other than a full regime change
1: I think I think a full regime change <laughs> is the a... only is the only thing that's going to change it. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Venezuela in the early 1990s and they had made uh, a lot of
0: progress at one point. Well, didn't they?
1: there were some there were some very very well-run companies and uh, Petovisa, the big oil company, was always known as a company that was that had experts and was well managed, but
0: unfortunately Quite a lot of that seems to have changed now. So now let us um, let me change this up a little bit. During the European crisis, we saw um, accusations that a number of countries that were considered part of the EU and considered developed nations really could have been on the emerging markets side of, uh, of the line. And the example that comes up time and again is Greece. Was Greece really... A full developed nation, and was it comparable to its other European uh, Union colleagues? Unfortunately, the situation
1: that has befallen in Greece has been a tragedy. It was an emerging market country. Uh, then it joined the EU, and essentially got a lot of EU fiscal aid and
0: and low rates um, and infinite borrowing
1: from Germany. And that has that has really compromised the economy and the indebtedness uh, of the country has gone up dramatically. It's now back in emerging markets. And I would say we're waiting to see if uh, the plans, the economic plans for Greece can rehabilitate the country, particularly the banks, Mm -hmm. which uh, have very, very high non-performing loans. But if, if the economic plans can work, then perhaps Greece can come back. It's a very sad story. A lot of the companies that I've seen over years have have had terrible problems through this. and in many ways, it might have been a better thing if Greece had never uh,
0: put the euro as its kind mm-hmm. as its currency. I, I was in Greece two summers ago and I'm just struck by what a beautiful country. the people are lovely, but you're getting a tourists eye view, not necessarily a uh, economist's eye view. And it feels like a European country. It feels like a developed country. You just the apparently the financial infrastructure simply isn't there compared to the rest of Europe.
1: Well, it had excellent banks mm-hmm.
0: uh, in in the period in the
1: 1990s. Um, some very very well run banks, but when indebtedness increased enormously and wasn't really. Uh, kept properly in the economic pitch in, in the economic figures of the country. Um, it was a big negative surprise and of course no one no one wanted to be involved with the country at all.
0: Now with hindsight looking back, it seems absurd that banks in Greece and go- the government of Greece could borrow at the same rate as banks in France or Germany, but I guess that's the problem with too much easy money. That, I think, is the problem. So we we always used to talk about the pigs, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. Um, Are any of those other southern European countries really uh, at risk for – where should these countries be placed? Should they be developed nations or or emerging markets?
1: From what I understand with those four countries, they have worked pretty hard – on mending their their fiscal situations and their economic condition. And so I don't think they will be emerging markets, um, those four. Portugal is mean, probably the closest, but uh-huh. I, think, I think they've all done a lot of very important work in the last six or seven
0: years. I mean, it's hard to imagine Italy as an emerging market, given their history and everything else. And I, I was just in Spain in October, and I can't say enough about how delightful – Everything from the food to the people. But again, it's a tourist-eye view. You're not seeing the dark underside. Um, And then let's talk a little bit about China, because that is such a fascinating growth story and such a fascinating country over the past three decades. What's the line in the sand where China crosses over from EM to developed? Well... I think there's some way yet to get to that li- line.
1: One of the, the big changes that's happening uh, this year is that the main indices will all have China A-shares, so mainland traded shares in China. And the capital markets in China are increasingly converging with global capital markets. We still have quite a lot of work to do on the, on the debt side in China, but this a share inclusion in the MSCI index mm-hmm.
0: I think is a major major event so to to put to explain that a little bit if you are a non-china resident if you're overseas you go to Hong Kong you're buying b shares not a shares there isn't the same arbitrage situation that keeps them lined up sometimes you're paying a premium you're not getting the same exact thing the same exact rights is that going to go away, and we're all going to be able to buy A shares? Is that the expectation?
1: As long as you have an ability to do it through the Connect system in Hong Kong, you're going to be able to buy Shanghai or Shenzhen listed A shares in that market to a large degree within those indices. And it's worth remembering the A share market is, you know, if you take the full market, is the second biggest. Mm-hmm. uh stock market in terms of market capitalization in the world. So are B shares going to
0: go away? I'm not sure if they're going to go away, but possibly over time they will. So China has been growing, well, for a while it was 10%, 12%. Now we're in the 7%. Not that that's too shabby. We're, we're hoping to grow at 3% in the U.S. We'd kill for 7%. What happens to China's economy as they mature, and what does that mean for their share market?
1: Well, it's easier for rudimentary economies to grow rapidly, because there's a catch-up process with the developed world. And uh, so over the last 30 years or so, uh, the growth has been very impressive. But it's been naturally coming down mm-hmm. because the catch up is
0: is less and less. You're starting from such a tiny base; it's easy to grow twenty percent. That's when right. Small, but now they're almost as large a, an economy as as the U.S. and in some measures larger.
1: Yeah, I think it's less big than the U.S., but it it's been growing much faster, and it has the potential one day to be as big as the U.S. Um, I think you know the interesting thing is that last year at the Chinese Party Congress, uh, they didn't actually come out with a target growth rate. It had been around 6.5%. This all uh, has a lot to do with Xi Jinping, uh, the president, and consolidation of his power. Um, But the fact that they haven't got a target growth rate, I think, is important because perhaps it takes pressure off Xi Jinping and the, and the leadership to some degree. I think there's also a wish in China to have better quality of
0: growth and not just simply higher growth. Let's get into some of the details there. That That's really interesting. How do you define better quality? How do they define better quality? What are they looking to see from their economy going forward? What areas... Do they want to see more growth in, and and what are they leaving behind? I think they probably mean
1: better diversified growth. Uh I think they probably mean more technology and more uh, modern industries and not just the big industrial, old-style industries. Um, They've also indicated that they would like to see less financial leverage Mm
0: -hmm. in the economy, in the industrial sectors of the economy as well. Now- Aren't most of the major financial centers and and big banks there either somewhat or partly or fully state-owned? If they want less leverage, can't they just dial back their leverage? It it seems sort of odd to hear that said, we want less leverage. Well, you guys are in charge of it. That is correct. (laughs) But on the other hand, um,
1: China has changed a great deal in the last 30 years. But there are still uh, old-style effects from the communist period. So, for instance, state-owned enterprises, uh, companies that are wholly owned or are still majority controlled by the state or different government bodies, uh, in some cases, they have a constitutional right to bank capital. Huh. And so, one of the issues in China that has been concerning investors has been, uh, particularly in the last six or seven years, when the economy has been slowing down, uh, quite a lot of state-owned enterprises have been demanding capital from the banks.
0: So, they have a right to access bank capital, but what about leverage ratios? What about interest rates? There are lots of dials and levers that the state can pull. To say, if you want capital, okay, but it's going to cost you 14% or, or whatever.
1: Well, the the state-owned enterprises have actual rights to have the capital often at lower rates. Huh. And so the, the amount of control the banks have, or even the politicians who are in charge of the banks, is limited.
0: That's fascinating.
1: And so uh, this is a process which presumably will get deregulated
0: over time, but it is not there at this stage. So a couple of years ago, a giant story out of China was the ghost cities that, that China seemed to be anticipating the need for big urban centers, be it for manufacturing or, or service jobs. And they would put up these cities of 10, 20, 30 million people seemingly overnight. And there was a bit of a frenzy to buy into those Units. And then that story kind of faded from from the headlines. What's happening with those cities? What economic purpose do they serve? And is that a good or a bad thing for China's future? Urbanization
1: is still at the core of Chinese political thinking.
0: This is a 10-year plan. This isn't just a short-term May even be longer
1: than 10 years. Yes. There's still a massive movement of people from rural areas to the cities. There are over 100 cities apparently in China that have a million people or more you know a mid-sized city in China is probably 8 million people like With new york new york city right <laughs> and, a, a... and a big city is like shanghai or beijing at 20 million people wow. and uh, but but i think Urbanization is a long-term process, and
0: half the country is is in farms, or is it is it more or less than that? Um,
1: it's it's probably a little bit more than half wow. the country that still is in a rural setting, but um, opportunities, um, economic opportunities, are generally far greater in urban settings. Uh, the, your opportunity to go to university, be educated, much greater if you're in an urban. Uh, uh location and um, I think the government is definitely continuing to think of urbanization
0: um, as an ongoing primary policy so so that seems like it accomplishes a few things it gets people out of the rural areas off the farms it leads to greater education of the population and creates a fairly sophisticated workforce that can do some of these uh, more modern, industries that, that the Chinese government is pushing people for? Is that, is that a fair I assessment? I think that's fair. I think it's all part of the economic development program that the Chinese government would like to see. So we barely think beyond a quarter or two in the United States. They're making plans 10 and 20 years out. That's a real challenge to compete with that, isn't it? I think emerging countries have to think in terms of
1: decades. For their economic development. That's Mm -hmm. that is really the best way of of looking at things because again, they have the visibility because they can look at a country like the US and say, maybe we don't want to be exactly like what the US is, but we we can catch up in these various areas over
0: the course of the next ten or fifteen years. So the infrastructure spend we've seen in China, right now we're recording this in the midst of an infrastructure debate in the United States. They have been spending tens of billions, maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars on infrastructure build-out. Uh, how important is that to the country? How much longer is that going to go on? Are they going to basically create the equivalent of what the U.S. did post-war uh, for their own country? And and why aren't we doing it, which is the rhetorical question afterwards? I would probably say they've already done that because really? uh, if you go to—
1: even mid-sized cities in China, you'll find a beautiful new airport. You'll find expressways and highways. You'll find, m- in many places, very very good infrastructure, and uh, they they believe that is necessary to attract companies to to set up factories or to set up a potential for employment, and. Uh, and they've they've done that and i think they are continuing to do that as we look ahead maybe maybe we're not going to see big increases but i think we're going to see ongoing spending
0: and and they think that gives them an competitive advantage for both building attracting capital building factories building companies that become world class global competitors
1: and i think the evidence is there i mean china is today in many areas, the factory of the world. And and so that that build building of infrastructure
0: has, has attracted a lot of big companies. Someone here should take a look at what they're doing and perhaps we can have paved roads also. I remember when I could drive my car <laughs> on the road and not worry about losing a a, a tire. Um, anything we skipped, anything we I, I didn't mention that you wanna Refer what any parts of the world or any countries Well I
1: think I think India is worth mentioning at this point because according to I think the the, the 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 leading plans in India, something like two-thirds of all infrastructure spending is planned to be built in the next fourteen years. In India. In India. Now if you've been to India. I have not. Okay. India is is uh, Is quite a different situation to China. The infrastructure is generally um, relatively old, although there's been quite a lot of infrastructure building in the last 15 years.
0: I've seen photos of telephone poles with thousands of wires coming off of them. Some are phones, some are internet. It it looks like it's utterly jury-rigged and cobbled together.
1: Well, I am... the plan is to change that. The plan is to build something like two-thirds of the total infrastructure of the country mm-hmm. in the next 14 or 15 years. And uh, that is that is with the Modi government. So it's it's a very exciting time in India. and I think it's important to to highlight it because it may have a significant effect on
0: worldwide growth. Huh, quite interesting. Let me jump to some of my favorite questions. I ask all of my guests, let's start with what is the most important thing that people who know you don't know about your background? Well, I, when I was a, a student, I had uh,
1: quite a lot of pretty basic jobs. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: I was a street cleaner in, in London for a summer.
0: Like literally uh, pushing li- a broom? L- or... Yes,
1: yes, wow. which gave me a different perspective on the world, I think. Um, and uh, and I it was imagine. certainly uh, quite an interesting life. I worked at a pulp and paper mill in northern British Columbia one summer, which was quite a tough job, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And I worked also in a, in a warehouse uh, for a, a supermarket company unpa- unpacking boxcars. Um, I would say these these things motivated me to want to have an office job, <laughs> yes, and ultimately motivated me to uh, to move into the investment world where I could be mentally stimulated.
0: Tell us about some of your mentors who helped push your career along and and affected your philosophy.
1: Well, I've been fortunate. My father was an asset manager; it was a portfolio manager, um, and I never had pressure to go into this area, but. Uh, he was, he was certainly someone who uh, understood the industry and was, was very helpful from that point of view, and I was fortunate later to get an opportunity to, to work a little bit in the industry, and, and then I took various exams to see if I enjoyed it more. So that was one mentor. I would say uh, when I was at SG Warburg and Mercury Asset Management, uh, several of my senior colleagues' were truly investment people and were, were tremendously good mentors to me. And this is an industry that always has its challenges and you have to know how to deal with those challenges. Mm-hmm. And they were, they, were, they were very, very important
0: to me. How about your philosophy? What investors affected the way you look at the world of investing or in general or emerging markets in particular? Well, this probably sounds a little bit textbook, but I would say
1: I very clearly understand the way Warren Buffett invests. Um,
0: By the and, way, people people don't realize it's an actual legal obligation of the show for that to be the answer. It it's You could do much worse than Warren Buffett. You know,
1: well, I think he's probably one of the absolute best investors of all time. I also think John Templeton. Mm-hmm. Was uh was one of again one of the greatest investors of all time, very much a global investor, Mm -hmm. and uh, and very fundamental in nature. And I think, I really think they were probably the two names that I would put at the top of the list. Buffett for valuation, Templeton
0: for global. And, and Templeton for valuation as well. Oh, really? Hmm. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about some of your favorite books. This is everybody's favorite question. <laughs> Tell us what you like to read. Uh, give us some uh, of your favorite books, be they finance-related or not, fiction or nonfiction. Well, I
1: um, I very much enjoyed recently reading a book on The Wright Brothers by David McCulloch. I mm-hmm. thought it was a very interesting book. Uh, I enjoyed... Um, Reading the last spike, which is a Canadian book, all about the building of the Canadian Pacific Railroad and the, the last spike, the last spike. So it was huh. the last spike in the railroad when they they finished that off uh, in the Rockies, and uh, so that's 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 a bit of my Canadian background. Um, I I still think the Prince by Machiavelli mm-hmm. is a brilliant book and and tells you a lot about interacting in. Difficult situations and and a very very uh, useful book from that point of
0: view. Mm-hmm. Those are those are three winners. What has changed since you've entered the world of emerging markets? How is it different today than it was in the early nineties?
1: Our universe has changed dramatically. So again, back. In the 1990s, places like Malaysia and Mexico were huge parts of our universe. Portugal and Greece were part of our universe back then, very big parts. Greece has come back in, but it left for a while. Today, China has become the really big weighted country, but Brazil and India um, are also very substantial. So the universe has changed, um, and there's been quite a lot of sectoral change in it. There's been a lot more... uh, constituents of our universe, which I think is very different from the U.S., mm-hmm. where I think the number of stocks has actually fallen over the last, say, fifteen years.
0: The the joke is the Wilshire five thousand is about thirty six hundred right. or
1: so. <laughs> right. I mean, the other thing that's really changed is that information has ballooned. So, uh, twenty twenty five years ago, going being being based in these markets was, I think, much more important, whereas today I don't think you have to be based in the markets. I think you can go and travel regularly mm-hmm. to the markets um, because the information is is
0: instant. Is that a, a competitive disadvantage um, at one point in time where there wasn't a lot of information and now anyone can Google it and come up with some some data?
1: I think 20 or 25 years ago.
0: It, uh, it could have been seen as a disadvantage. Hmm. So you've told us about the recent shifts over the past three decades. What do you expect the shifts to be in the emerging market space over the next three decades? Um, well, it's
1: very hard to tell. I would imagine emerging markets will develop further, and, and we'll see some of the frontier countries joining the emerging markets. Vietnam, for instance, is a frontier country. Perhaps it'll develop its capital markets to become an emerging market. We'll see. Uh, so that, that's one thing. Um, you know, some perhaps shorter-term changes. Uh, we've seen a market than the last seven years where growth has been the most successful style by a long way. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some stage, I would anticipate a change of leadership more towards value. Um, True in the U.S. as well. That it would probably be a global uh, effect if it happened. I think there's a high probability of that. I also think in the emerging markets in the last five or six years, markets have been quite affected and in in some cases dominated by macroeconomic factors. And I would guess that they'll become more idiosyncratic, more stock focused at some point in time. Hmm. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Well, when I was at university um, many, many years ago, I was very involved in student politics, Mm -hmm. and I was the speaker of the university student council, which was actually quite a serious operation. And uh, there was an election for president of the uh, student council, and I, I think I could have Uh, being a contender and i i could have even won it and i uh i i decided not to go into that uh, race and i and i've i've lived to regret it Mm -hmm.
0: we we always seem to regret the things we don't do as opposed to uh, those that we do tell us what you do outside of the office to either relax or stay mentally or physically fit what do you do for fun when you're not in a suit and tie well, when I can, I try and do a bit of exercise. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, not not as much as I'd like to, but I do try and do some. Uh, i I read quite a lot. Um, I quite enjoy some uh, movies. I um, have a cottage up in Canada, so I uh, go up there and and travel in boats and and see friends in in those places. And I even though I travel a lot for work, I do travel for pleasure as well, mm-hmm. and go and see historical sites and and you know, a place like Rome, for instance, is a wonderful place to go with incredible,
0: incredible history. No, no doubt about that. Where in Canada do you have a co- a cottage, and and what lakes are you boating it's, on? It's um, in Lake Huron. Uh-huh.
1: It's, uh huh. It's a part of Lake Huron called Georgian Bay, in the eastern part of Lake Huron, and it's of course a very, very big lake. And it's, it's remote, very difficult to get to, um, but, but it's a very
0: calming place. Mm-hmm. I, I go fishing every summer in Maine, and we're so far north that we start to get Bell Canada showing up on there. <laughs> but it's a flight in and then a, a float plane, and really it's, just it, it's not just 100 miles away from anywhere. It's, it's 100 years away from anywhere.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very remote where I go, and and actually quite hard to get to.
0: What sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone just beginning their career who were who was interested uh, in getting into emerging markets or asset management or or finance? Well, this is something we have to be concerned about because there are lots of
1: millennials now working with us, and uh, sometimes they have different priorities from mm-hmm. from from the way we are. But I. I would say, first of all, you can combine your business interests and and other interests, your personal interests in what we do. Obviously, uh, the type of work we do can become uh, challenging, but you can do other things. For instance, uh, I'm involved heavily in a charity, which is um, make, makes grants to about 70 grantees uh, around the emerging market world. I'm involved in an educational foundation. Um, and those are those are things that are very, very important to me. Um, I would also encourage millennials to think long term. The asset management business <clears throat> is a long-term business, particularly the long-only part of it. And you can't really be evaluated properly if you're not going to be long term in the in your focus. Um, Finally, I would say learn how to evaluate yourself. Learn how to, to criticize yourself in a positive f- framework, mm-hmm. uh, constructive criticism, um, and um, understand what you do well and what
0: you do badly. And our final question, what is it that you know about investing in emerging markets today that you wish you knew 30 years ago?
1: Well, I, I would say... The great thing about investing in general, but certainly in emerging markets, it's very stimulating. It's always challenging. It's not easy. You are always learning. Very important, you have a plan. You have a process. And I think to be in this business, you have to know how to take pain. How to take pain? Because anyone doing what we do, active investment management, is going to go through challenging periods of time, and you have to be mentally strong
0: to go through that. Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with James Donald of Lazard Asset Management. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. Overcast, Bloomberg.com, or wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put together this conversation each week. Medina Parwana is my producer and audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our Booker producer. Mike Batnick is our head of research. Atika, Valbrunn is our business manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.